The Cambi Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It's November 18th, 2020, and there are 696 days until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. What a show we have for people today. There is a ton of intrigue going into the Climate Action Plan, both in terms of the actual passage of the Action Plan recommendations of the City of Vancouver and who is voting and why some advice on how you can get high and save the planet, thanks to some innovative new natural gas contracts, the mayor doing or not doing things, the drugs addition, changing police enforcement, then some tax increases are coming to Surrey, drama on the Langley Council, and Vision Vancouver is having its general meeting, all the while COVID manages to batter the city and, of course, Vancouverada. But first, before we get on to everything, you know, what you should do is visit patreon.com slash report. Yes, patreon.com slash report, where you can support the show, help us keep it going. I think we've been having a great run these last few episodes every other week. They're doing good. Yeah. If you like them, help us keep making more of them. So that uh, address once again is patreon.com slash can be report uh you will also get access to the whole leg and boot media slack channel where the discussions are robust and exciting also exciting the eventual entropic death of everything the climate apocalypse so vancouver declared a climate emergency in its urgency it has come out with eventually a climate action plan that would include rolled tolls into downtown and central Broadway area. This is all part of an overall plan to achieve these goals by 2030, making more walkable neighborhoods, changing mode share. And it went to council for a vote. Yes, we talked about this on the last episode because it had just been introduced two weeks ago from city staff. And there were 70 plus speakers who signed up to talk to this from the public and as city of vancouver council is wont to do they hear from every one of them for five minutes and have the ability to ask them questions i listened to a few on the debate yesterday the first few all spoke in favor of it i don't know if that was a random sample or if overall there was a lot of support i know there were a lot of young people mobilized to speak to this some like teen groups that go hey we would like a planet to grow up on which is fair. Yeah, that's a nice sentiment. I don't necessarily think that we'll be able to give it to them, but, you know, points for trying, I guess. So it comes to the votes, and we'll get to the controversy in a second, but overall, every section passes, some of them unanimously, although Colleen Hardwick voted against a lot of sections and was the sole opponent to many of the sections. I think possibly in her view out of a worry about the $500 million price tag and whether we should be investing in this during the time of COVID, to which many would just say, the world is still on fire. Mm -hmm. We should do something. It's like one of those things that like hasn't changed with COVID. You know, so many things have, have changed 
And yet, we can always rely on the constant that is the impending apocalypse. So, the decrease in air travel, commuting, and overall recession caused by COVID will probably reduce greenhouse gases. It might buy us a couple more years, but we're still trending in the wrong direction. Yeah. And so there's been some interesting innovations when it comes to like growing an urban forest, which will not really do that much, but also some like shoreline habitat restoration, moving towards zero emission heating and hot water, which I am, well, currently the beneficiary slash victim of as my entire street is getting torn up very loudly right now, right next to me. Not this precise second. We've, we've managed to wait until all the workers have gone home, but it is a deep chasm in the center of Quebec. And of course, this has sparked some ire, uh, particularly against Vancouver's plan for roll tolls and mandatory parking permits. So there, there yeah. would be a mandatory parking permit for everyone who was parking on Vancouver City streets. Currently, most residential areas have either no parking permit required or parking by residents of the block only, which I have always taken to mean parking is allowed. <laughs> Especially for Evos, where it's explicitly allowed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, those were definitely the two most contentious at council and in the broader public. We saw the votes break down on party lines on both of these. And I think there was some question about where independent councillor Rebecca Bly or even Gene Swanson might go on these because both do impose costs on people. But both cases are further studies. Like a lot of the stuff in this plan was further study. This would be a work towards implementing a congestion charge in downtown in 2025. So lots of places still to put your voice in. There was only two amendments that ultimately passed to the staff recommendations. One just called for a bit more consultation on whether transportation pricing should have a regional approach. And another amendment just added a bit more equity, like emphasized that the plan should be implemented with an eye to people with disabilities and seniors and other disadvantaged groups. So nothing too objectionable in either of those. I mean, in terms of whether it should be implemented regionally, probably actually, but it's going to be difficult to do that because just trying to get all the mayors or TransLink or, or whatever body would be for it would still have to be passed by the relevant city councils. And frankly, including bedroom communities on the list of people who would be affected by the congestion charge, especially since it should also be, at least according to the plans, imposed over the Lionsgate Bridge as well. That is going to scuttle the plan almost entirely. It seems like one of those, please consult more in order to not do it indications. Gene Swanson has, however, assured people that they'll have lots of chances to say so. Not, of course, indicating that she was in interested in changing her vote in any way, but it, it is part of the, the overall climate plan. And the issue around regional strategies came up at council and council asked staff to respond to that, you know, would this be better as a regional approach? And staff's answer was, when we look around the world at where congestion pricing has been implemented, it always started at a city level first. It'll be dead on arrival if we try to go regional for the reasons you just laid out. Yeah, and I think that is 
probably pretty accurate assessment of the political climate, just given how most governments end up being organized around the world. I mean, like, both of us grew up in southern Alberta, where Calgary is Calgary and doesn't really have regional municipalities. It just swallows them up. And so the idea of a regional government is a little foreign to my upbringing. But Vancouver, of course, has Metrovan, and Metrovan would hate the congestion charge. So city staff are probably right there. However, city staff might not always be right because, well, weirdness has happened. So let's talk about the councillor who didn't vote on any of the climate plan. Green councillor Michael Weeb, who we've talked about in recent episodes, has had issues with conflict of interest and either he has gotten skittish about it or city legal in his words at the start of Tuesday's hearings announced he was going to recuse himself of all of the questioners and the rest of the debate on the climate action plan, which for his voters who voted for a green counselor, I have to feel like hurts. Yeah. So specifically, he was advised by City Legal that he needed to recuse from voting on a significant amount of the report because of his pecuniary interest as a director on Easy Park, which holds a significant parking market share across the city. Now, we're going to get into some dense legalese here, but remember the words, his pecuniary interest as a director of Easy Park, that is going to be important because conflict of interest applies when there is a monetary interest for the individual. Michael Weeb is appointed to Easy Park, and we'll go into a little bit of a, a detail on what Easy Park is in a moment, but he holds that by virtue of his being appointed to Easy Park by council as a city councillor. Now, does that create a conflict of interest? That is the, the question of the day. So, Specifically, let's look to the Vancouver Charter, section 145.6 sub 1 sub E. The conflict of interest sections do not apply if the pecuniary interest is of a nature prescribed by regulation. In other words, if the government has said these interests are not actually conflicts, mm -hmm. you're clear and you don't need to worry about the other sections. So... What do the regulations say? Conflict of interest exceptions, City of Vancouver regulation... For the purposes of section 145.6 sub 1 sub e of the act, a pecuniary interest in relation to a representative in the nature of a specified interest that arises as a result of a, the representative being appointed by council to the board of the entity, so a is fulfilled, and b, the representative one, attending any part of the meeting during which the specified interest is under consideration of the following, the council, the committee of council, or any other body referred in the act, participating in any discussion on the specified interest at such a meeting, or voting on a question in respect of the specified interest at such a meeting, finally, is prescribed. So, A is met, B is met, therefore, it is prescribed, which brings us back to the legal wording of the original Vancouver Charter section, if the pecuniary interest is of a nature prescribed by regulation. Very specifically, it is prescribed by regulation. As far as either of us can read it, that seems reasonable. Yes. City staff, though, apparently told him that that is, quote, irrelevant. 
Now, I would like to know why they considered it to be irrelevant. And we are going to be looking into this further because that, in my personal opinion, is bullshit. <laughs> like, it just doesn't make any sense. To, to explain why, I think we should start with what is Easy Park, right? Sure. Because what is this company? Because if he has a company or if he works for, has an involvement in a company that controls a lot of parking in Vancouver, it could seem like there's a conflict between him voting on things that affect parking requirements and traffic requirements in the city and his parking company. So who is Easy Park? So Easy Park, it was founded in 1948 by, according to their website, Visionary Downtown Merchant, uh, which operates as a nonprofit public authority and was a model of public-private partnership long before the phrase became fashionable. So this copywriting was obviously done by a drone during sometime during the last BC Liberal administration, because no one believes that creating parking is a visionary act. Suffice it to say, this original organization, which was called the Parking Corporation of Vancouver, eventually became known as Easy Park, you know, capital E, capital P, no space between them, as all entities in BC must be named by law. This Share structure gives the city of Vancouver the sole title to the assets of and the revenues generated by, generated by the corporation, which, again, removes the idea that Michael Weeb, as a councillor, has some kind of pecuniary interest in, like, his actions as a director of Easy Park. He's not acting for his, like, he has a fiduciary responsibility to Easy Park as a board, but he doesn't have uh, a pecuniary interest in Easy Park, uh, other than like him getting paid whatever special stipend. I I'm assuming that there's probably it's a nonprofit a, a, an honorarium. So, but like it's not, <laughs> he's not making profit off of it. He's not even getting paid a different amount. And it's not like that is tied to, to the amount, like the amount of business that DC Park does would be tied to the amount that he'd be getting. So, is there a conflict of interest for either the two council appointed directors or eight elected directors? I, by the way, I'm not exactly sure how those people are elected. I've been trying to figure that out and I cannot quite yet. But, my thought is, no, there is not a conflict of interest. So why is this happening? Weeb is facing a Supreme Court trial over whether he violated the conflict of interest laws. So I get, from his perspective, playing it extra safe in the meantime is just smart, Whether this, just so you don't get yourself in any more trouble, reasonable or not. Yeah. Like... One article that I read on this indicated that it was not only because Weeb was involved in Easy Park, was sitting on the board of Easy Park, a council appointment, but also due to the fact that he owns a business that is located within the Metro Corps, and he sits, in addition to him sitting on the, the Easy Park board of directors. Now, there are other instances in which there is no conflict of interest like outlined by the Vancouver Charter. And I, I think this also falls under those exceptions. So this is, again, section 
the exemptions from conflict restrictions. Now, the previous sections, 145.2 to 145.5, which detailed disclosure of conflict restrictions on participation, inside influence, and outside influence, do not apply if one or more of the following circumstances applies. The pecuniary interest of the council member is a pecuniary interest in common with electors of the city generally. My argument is that that is broadly true here. I think that there's enough remoteness that like saying that any business owner operating within the downtown core can't be involved in city politics because that creates a conflict is a little ridiculous. This is the section that kind of it will make or break his case on the other conflict of interest that he's more seriously facing, where it's arguable whether his business was one of a small enough number to benefit from the changes on patio exemptions. In this case, there are I believe more than a dozen businesses downtown, in which case his vote affects <laughs> at a least a number. dozen. <laughs> like at least a dozen left. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, and I, I feel like that is one held broadly in common with at least certain electors of the city generally. And further, that the pecuniary interest is so remote or insignificant can it uh, that it cannot be reasonably be regarded as likely to influence the member in relation to the matter. I think that's a more compelling thing than even the other one, because we don't know what this will do. Like, indications would indicate that voting in favor will probably, like, decrease car traffic, but it's also been shown to increase foot traffic in downtown course. I don't honestly think that the impact of this vote on the pecuniary interests of any particular councillor, let alone Councillor Weeb, would be knowable enough to influence the vote of a councillor when it came to their pecuniary interests one way or the other. Like, it's just too remote. It's a baffling thing. The other thing that's sitting there is the councillors ended up voting on the recommendations in the report line by line. So it was like a series of 30 or 40 votes in a row, just do we support this one, this one, that one. And so there's also an argument that we could have just intermittently removed himself from discussions around congestion charges and even maybe the parking recommendation and those specific votes and still supported the rest of the plan. Presumably he would have done because he is a green councillor and this is kind of why he was elected and is running. Like this is the whole point of his party. So it seems a little unusual that this type of advice is being given to a councillor, decreasing the democratic representation of the people who voted for him and frankly, others. <laughs> but maybe him not being there pushed Councillor Rebecca Bly to have to be more supportive of a plan that she might have either otherwise been more skeptical of. Yeah, no, and, and there, there, that is basically unknowable. But it, it also shouldn't even be something that we have to contemplate because he shouldn't be being advised to recuse himself on stuff that he shouldn't have to recuse himself from. We'll keep digging. We'll keep digging, uh, as of course will. 
a new greenhouse which is going to be shifting its production from vegetables to cannabis. So this is an exciting project happening in Delta that is going to take advantage of the biomass generated natural gas generated from the Vancouver landfill through the RNG project. City of Vancouver notes that when this project is complete and fully operational, the landfill will reduce emissions by 12,500 tons of CO2 annually, which is the equivalent to taking about 2,600 cars off the road every year. Yeah, this is a really cool project. It flows nicely from the climate plan, and it's these kind of projects that will help meet our climate targets, right? It's Mm -hmm. both a matter of reducing emissions, but also redirecting. This project also talks about how they're going to capture and purify the biogas created by compost at the dump and blend it with natural gas from Fortis, BC to reduce the carbon intensity of natural gas going throughout the city. You know, that's that kind of biogas discussion was brought up in the climate action plan as well. Like these are just neat. Yeah. And they're also going to be producing food grade CO2, which, you know, is relevant to me as I take a sip from my soda stream. But there are, of course, other uses for CO2 around. Now, this is something that is not entirely finished. The Delta RNG project, which is where the Vancouver landfill is located, received approval from the BC Utilities Commission last fall. But it needs a couple more regulatory approvals, which are expected to be received in the early new year. Now, if you are interested in smoking some of the weed that is going to be coming out of this greenhouse that is going to be warmed and and filled with CO2 generated by this biomass, Pure Sun Farms is what you're wanting to be looking for at your BC Cannabis store or other retailer. Pure Sun Farms, it is a, a company that is, well, it's the brand for Emerald Health subsidiary that is what the cannabis growing organization that Village Farm Clean Energy, the formerly vegetable-based greenhouse that is now going to be growing marijuana, is going to be sold under. So Pure Sun Farms, that is uh, going to be getting people high with the, I, I suppose, somewhat removed gases of Vancouver's rotting newspapers and food scraps. Hey, it's, it's green weed. It's the most Vancouver thing you can get. And I'm just realizing, like, this is sounding a lot like an ad, and we have not been paid by Emerald Health Subsidiary. But if you are interested in sponsoring content on the Cambia Report, you can find our contact details at cambiareport.ca. It does sound an awful lot like an ad. Feel free to send us some product. I will be happy to sample and endorse it if I am satisfied. But leaving that dream of drugs aside, on to, oh, more drugs. So, Vancouver Mayor uh, Kennedy Stewart has introduced a motion to decriminalize illicit drug possession, blares a headline somewhat inaccurately. Yeah, he launched a big press conference today about how he's got a plan to decriminalize simple possession of drugs. No, he doesn't. Uh, He did this in conjunction with Dr. Patricia Daly of Vancouver Coastal Health. The idea behind it is that we have a toxic drug supply and decriminalizing drugs as many groups have called for including the premier of bc the coalition of police chiefs would make it safer for drug users to get safer supply 
Someone should let the Premier of BC know what his Solicitor General did with a report from the Provincial Health Officer that indicated that this might be a good step to take, you know, about a year and a half ago. But well, neither here. So this ends up there. being a jurisdiction game where everyone likes to point fingers at the federal government who has the ultimate lever over the criminal code, as, yes. we, as we all know, as we all learned in school, right? However, the province is also responsible for administering police. So there is some opportunity there for the province to take some leadership action. That is going to be something that the new Horgan administration is going to have to deal with. The person to be looking at for the new cabinet will be the Solicitor General, the Minister of Public Safety, and that's going to be announced on November 26th. If it's Farnworth again, I wouldn't count on it. If it's EB, maybe there's something that might be achieved. What isn't going to be achieved is the actual decriminalization of drugs at a municipal level. He is writing a letter. It's not he, actual It might be more than one letter. He might actually write three letters or more. Oh, oh that changes everything. <laughs> so the text of the motion, which is included in his announcement, is to call on council to direct the mayor himself to write a letter on behalf of the city to the federal ministers of health, public safety, and emergency preparedness, and justice and attorney general, to, quote, request a federal exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to decriminalize personal possession of illicit substances within the city's boundary for medical purposes. The idea there is that, like when Insight was created, the federal government didn't legalize safe injection sites at the time. They just used the ministerial powers to create an exemption to the existing laws within a little square footage of space. So now, Kennedy's idea here, which is actually a novel one, and I like it, is to get the ministers, rather than try and pass in this minority parliament drug decriminalization, even though I'm pretty sure the NDP and Greens would at least be on side, is to just have the minister, one of them, one of those three, exempt the entire city of Vancouver from the Controlled Drugs Act. I mean, it's it's novel. I mean, it's something that he might have been able to achieve more if he were still an MP working in Ottawa, who was able to put these questions to the minister in question period. You know, indeed, it's it's a little it's a little ridiculous to be honest. I I think that like claiming that you're going to be doing something when really you're advocating for it. I don't know. It doesn't feel like governance to me and. Maybe it's just a, a function of the fact that being a federal New Democrat MP doesn't really prepare you for governance responsibilities with a ton of experience governing, but, well, who's to say? Anyway, th this is going to involve, one way or the other, if, if something like this goes through, some substantial changes in the way we police our communities, and some other changes are under underway when it comes to, or rather not, when it comes to how police interact with the citizenry here in Vancouver. As we've sort of touched on a couple times in the past and it has been in the news, City Council has taken a number of clear steps around policing through various motions that have been passed. They called on Vancouver Police Department to end street checks citing work by BC Civil Liberties Association and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs 
that these disproportionately target Black and Indigenous members of our community. And they also called on police through approved motion of council to end policing that targets people living in poverty. In response to that, it seems like the police have done exactly the opposite. Vancouver police have created, yeah, a neighborhood response unit that is, quote, tasked with responding to low-level crime and just checking in on homeless people. Uh, there's nothing that homeless people, I'm sure, want more than to be surveilled and checked in on by the police. City Council also proposed a 1% budget cut to Vancouver police, to which the police board said, nah, we don't want to do that. And then council backed off because if council had insisted, it would have to go to the province and then the NDP provincially would have had to make a decision. Someone has to be in control of the police. Like the idea that council can't control the police is insane and needs to be fixed. This segment is really inspired by Jen St. Dennis's piece in the Tai, which we'll link to and is well worth the read. She's been doing some great stuff at the Tai recently. It's, yeah, it's shocking that the police seem to just be not just like not listening to council, but going directly against what the local community is asking them to do. Like this isn't based on community outcry. This is based on their crime statistics, which like I'll get to that in a moment, but like the only two members of council that have specifically spoken out in favor of the neighborhood response unit are Councillors Kirby Young and Councillor uh, DiGenova, both of whom are married to police officers. <laughs> Therefore, are generally in conflict of interest. No, Genuinely, no, it's not conflict of interest. But <laughs> Well, they avoid those votes. Often. Yeah. I, I think they have avoided votes that have impacted compensation, but not generally like police funding more holistically. So things that could impact compensation would in, in fact generate a conflict of interest for them. But the creation of a neighborhood response unit, well, apparently they don't get a say in it at all because even though council voted for budget cuts and reducing street checks, the uh, police board has gone ahead and done the opposite. In particular, delaying the consideration of the street checks motion to 2021, February, when it was be referred to the police board's governance committee, which is stupid because, of course, 2020 statistics are going to be bananas. Like the, the idea that 2020 is in any way going to produce usable or representative data for the city of Vancouver or you know, anywhere in the world is lunacy. So Well, and even some of the recently released Vancouver police statistics, their own numbers suggested a drop in crime versus last year, which is actually the exact opposite of what I would have expected with so many people out of work. We did mention community outcry, and I think what is driving this is specific communities making specific outcries in specific neighborhoods. Yeah. It's not the democratic will of the elected council, it's people who have the privilege and ability to make a lot of noise that the cops are listening to. And Sarah Bly is one of the people who is speaking up against this, as well as the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or VANDU. This is, it's just unusual, I have to say. I don't know what kind of, of vows the police board takes, but it sounds like it's, you know, to have it to hold in custody for better, no, 
for worse, for the richer against the poorer as sickness takes our health. Policing will be fairish till death or some compassion sense of social responsibility overtakes the police board. <sighs> it would be nice if the chair of the police board would speak out. Yeah. At some point. Who's the chair of the police board again? I believe it's one Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Oh, well, that I wouldn't count on it. So let's leave that the dead fish out there rotting in the sun and head down the Sky Train after slapping on your mask to the city of Surrey, where tax increases are going to be coming to the city as costs spiral out of control. Well, maybe not out of control. Uh, apparently, they're still going to be running a slight surplus in their capital budget, but they are proposing an additional $200 per household capital parcel tax on top of a 2.9% property tax hike for 2021. It's a little baffling why they're doing it like this, but they've got a lot of costs. Let's just say that. Uh, it turns out police are expensive. Yeah, who would have thought? Especially when you want to go from a police system partially subsidized by the federal government to your own, which I would say in theory would provide more local accountability. But as we just discussed, apparently not. <laughs> no, I'm actually just reading Justin Ling's new book about the murders in the gay district and community, uh, his books missing from the village. And I just got through the chapter on the history of the Toronto police interactions with the gay community. And let's just say that last segment's not atypical of interactions between major police departments and municipal councils and the communities that they're supposed to protect. Yeah, I mean, police have have often been a tool of the powers that be, though apparently they're not even a tour of the powers that be. They're just a self-sustaining force that does its own thing now, which is very deeply troubling. In the meantime, the city of Surrey is planning on borrowing $130 million in part to cover the spread between the $45 million reduction that it's planning on spending on the RCMP while it adds $62 million to Surrey police service operating costs. Now, these costs are operating costs in addition to the one-time transition costs, which come from the capital budget and are now projected to be about $64 million or 40% higher than anticipated. So, you know, a good $20 million there. And wow. all of that is against the background challenges that COVID has created for municipalities. Which are significant. And as we covered last time, if you haven't listened, go check that out. There are significant shortfalls particularly for larger cities like Vancouver and Surrey, where they are not going to be getting the amount of money, uh, and indeed mere fractions of the amount of money that they had hoped for and are, are facing shortfalls of in the near future. Vancouver got, I think, $16 million when they were looking for 60 So that is a problem. Surrey, however, seems more happy to wield its taxing power to increase revenues, as well as to borrow against uh, future revenues that they are coming in in order to fund the dream of a Surrey police force. If Surrey councillors happen to be listening, let's make sure that that police force has some accountability measures that allow you to be in control of it. I think they're limited by the Police Act there, 
which will be reviewed. But let's continue down the SkyTrain that will one day exist to the city of Langley, where things are just off the rails. <laughs> That's the benefit of the, the Canby Report, is that we can travel down future SkyTrains <laughs> from the comfort of our home. <laughs> so, as we reach the terminus of the future SkyTrain, we see that Langley City Council, this is Langley City, not Langley Township, have voted their mayor off the Metro Vancouver board. This is basically unheard of. I, I can't think of any instance in the time that I've been paying attention to municipal politics when uh, city councillors have removed their mayor from the board of Metro Vancouver. But Mayor Val Vandenbroek is now the only mayor in the region not representing her municipality on the regional government board. So the vote went four to three to remove Vandenbroek in what she described as just another vote in, quote, anti-mayor Val. Councillor Gail Martin will be now taking her place at the Metro Vancouver board. Vanderbrook says she will still attend them as it's her job, but she will not be paid nor have any greater voice than any other citizen. Now, presumably she is also going to be removed. I, I wasn't actually able to determine this from the the article and I couldn't find the minutes on the the link. I don't believe they've been posted yet. But oh, one of the councillor's comments to CBC saying they couldn't comment on the board vote because the meeting was quote in camera. Okay, but the vote so was a secret vote. Like you, the votes. They had the discussion in camera and then came out to vote. I guess. I I guess I think that's. I mean, it's it's not a personnel issue. I don't know why that thing had to go into camera. That seems insane. Unless it is a personnel issue about her behavior to other things. But now I'm wildly speculating and I don't know if you know what's happening in Langley City. Give us a call. Send us an email. (laughs) Tweet at us. It it is like a little unusual (laughs) because the mayor has gone on to make some unusual remarks. Quote, council has never accepted the results of the municipal election since day one. I hear some councillors say to me, you need to be taught a lesson. You can't use your mayor title when you're not in council. Editor's note, not true. Women shouldn't be mayor. You don't deserve to be mayor. Uh, I feel citizens need to know what's actually going on. Councillor Rosemary Wallace goes on to comment on the situation. Whether I have a view on it or not, I'm not going to answer the question on conflict at City Hall because I don't want to throw my council under the bus. I don't know what the motivation was with council to vote for Martin. That is, it's a very, uh, very bus throwing under a way to not throw your council under the bus there, Councillor Wallace. But, you know, that, that may be what it is. I am a little baffled, and I think that this needs to looked into further. I don't understand why this kind of discussion on representation, especially since it it is impactful, would have to be in camera for remaining councillors, other than, of course, Martin and Wallace have not responded. There isn't very much that Vandenbroek can do to regain her seat on the board. I'm not sure if she has also been removed from the Translate Council of Mayors, the article seems to intimate that she was because it states that 
she will no longer be able to vote on issues like a SkyTrain extension to Langley. I, I'm not actually sure that that's true because I'm pretty sure that the legislation around the South Coast Regional Transportation Authority indicates that it has to be the mayor representing councils, like representing the, the cities on the Council of Mayors. So I believe that she actually still would be able to vote in discussions on things like the SkyTrain extension, but not from a position on the Metro Vancouver Council if it came to something like raising revenues for regional tax based on, on transit. Because there is, of course, a transit committee on Metro Vancouver in addition to the actual South Coast Regional Transportation Authority that is the TransLink board. I'll note that in the Langley Advance Times, Councillor Nathan Pachal refuses to comment beyond about what went on in the in-camera meeting, but he noted that two previous Langley city mayors, Ted Schaefer and Peter Fassbrender, did not serve as directors in Metro, and a number of other lower mainland communities have done the same. It's still yeah, but I think that's, bizarre. I think that's by choice. Like it's, I, I think they've elected to not do it themselves and instead recommended the appointment of other, other people. I know that Mayor Robertson has, when, when he was mayor, tended to focus on, on city things. I'm not sure if he was the representative on the, the Metrovan Council. Generally, I think that generally went to some of the other vision councillors when they had a majority. Speaking of Vision Vancouver, they still exist, it turns out. <laughs> Surprising. And beyond, I mean, they have one elected member on school board, trustee Alan Wong, but I think we've all forgotten about them until someone forwarded us along an invite to their 2020 annual general meeting that's coming up. Huh. This meeting is going to be on November 26th, where Catherine Evans and Aaron Lung are going to be co-chairing the meeting in order to vote. You must have been a member as of 8 p.m. on November 12th, which is the same deadline that is given for the standing for the board. I went looking through... Vision Vancouver's social media and their website. And they haven't posted an update to their website since September 2019. Prior to that, all of the updates on their website are from the October 2018 election. They haven't tweeted since December 2019. They haven't used their Facebook since about the same period. So the party is not what one would view as active at the moment. Now, it's very much the like midway between two elections. And if you're party solely exists to elect candidates. That's not too surprising. At least the party isn't clearly at war with their elected trustee that I know of. NPA, etc. That That is, of course, a battle that is still shaking itself out. However, Vision Vancouver, or let's be honest, it's moribund corpse, is going to be casting off one head and putting on another to see if that party is going to be able to rise from the political ashes and elect people once more, or whether it will go the way of once powerful Vancouver political organizations like team and let's be honest, cope. In the meantime, of course, a biological apocalypse continues to rage around us with 762 new cases of COVID-19 today announced in BC. The, vast majority of which are in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health. This is, of course, in the midst of 
regulations that say no socializing with anyone outside your household, which I have to say can't continue much longer. You've got to have there like there has to be some way for the outdoor socialization to resume again in in the near future, like socially distant, of course, but like this is going to have a toll on people's mental health that I think might be severe, especially since we don't have a safe drug supply and mental health has been shown to increase suicidal ideation in people who are forced to be alone. Like the, the isolation has been uh, increasing social suicidal ideation amongst people who are forced to be alone for extended periods of time as reported in several different glacier media papers. It's a bit glib, but all work and no play makes us all a dull boy. Yeah. To quote the shining. Nevertheless, cases are still rising. There's rumors that more restrictions in rather than less will be announced tomorrow at Dr. Bonnie Henry's weekly update, one of her two weekly updates. The good news is there's at least two vaccines showing a lot of promise and coming to the end of their trials, which is very optimistic for starting to get that to people in early 2021. Mm -hmm. Still a ways to go, though. Moderna and Pfizer looking at 94.5% effective. This is a bit of an interesting number because as they publish it, what it actually means is of the people of like the I only know the numbers for the Pfizer vaccine. So it was around 30,000 people that were uh, part of the the vaccine trial. What they do to get that 90% number is take the number of people who end up contracting COVID and look at how many got the placebo versus how many got the, the actual treatment because it is unethical to do as the original vaccinator Edward Jenner did and just expose people to the illness. <laughs> so they didn't do that. Uh, and instead, they just allowed people to go about their lives. About 100, I, I believe it's 100 people got COVID out of that test cohort, 10 of which were people who had received the vaccine, whereas the remaining 90% had not. They had received a placebo. Thanks for that lesson. Yeah, it is uh, some strong medicine that we are going to be needing. And I I am interested in seeing what Vancouver has in store for the planned distribution of this vaccine. I know that's going to be primarily handled by the health authorities, but there is going to be a massive coordination logistical effort that uh, needs to happen. And I hope it comes sooner rather than later. I know the Public Health Agency of Canada has already started on that. Canada has procured more potential vaccines than most other countries. If every vaccine they bid on churned out, we would have 10 doses per person in this country. It was kind of bet on everything as our strategy. Sign me up. There will be a triage, a priority list developed, consulted with the provinces and the experts. Not my field. You and I probably aren't at the top of the list. No. Healthcare workers are very close than, you know, the aged and people most at risk from the disease. We'll get around to everyone eventually. Yeah. In the meanwhile, stay home if you can, wash your hands, wear a mask. All those things you keep being told to do are very important, it turns out. 
And if you are bored, dive into some Vancouver history. It is time for Vancouverada. So, back in the depths of the Great Depression, I, I chose this, of course, because there was a uh, major depression, labor unrest, and uh, indicators of protest. So, not altogether unlike today, but still pretty foreign, at least to my current state of mind, which sees about a thousand protesters as just a major, just a major hazard in the current day and age. This is, of course, the Battle of Ballantine Pier, which took place on the 18th of June in 1935, when a thousand protesters, majorly comprised of striking longshoremen and their supporters, marched towards the Heatley Street entrance to Ballantine Pier, which is a part of the Port of Vancouver, where strike breakers were unloading ships in the harbor. At the foot of Heatley Avenue that they were meant by the RCMP who fired tear grass into the crowd and responded with mounted officers all brandishing riding crops. This started a pitched battle which raged for between 30 minutes to three hours with the RCMP clubbing the protesters and the protesters showering the police with rocks, uh, including, as I understand, prying up some cobbles from the street. Now, as they attempted to force their way through, the dockers found themselves under attack from the police lines. Many marchers were clubbed as they tried to run to safety. This was a what was generally deemed to be a severe overreaction by the Vancouver police. Others tried to fight back using whatever weapons they could. Both the RCMP and Vancouver police responded and the Vancouver District Waterfront Workers Association Union Hall was attacked where the Women's Auxiliary had set up a, a first aid station inside to treat people. They all got tear gassed. Jesus. So, police accountability, still a problem. Yeah, the Battle of Ballantine Pier is a kind of like cornerstone point of Vancouver labor history, right? It's a major event. It culminates years of efforts by the dock workers along our harbor to unionize in different ways. They were in one union. That one got shredded up after they failed a different strike. And then a company union essentially got set up that was the Vancouver District Waterfront Workers Association you mentioned. But that one radicalized because it turns out a whole bunch of dock workers don't really enjoy being dictated to by the company that they're working yeah, for. They don't yeah. like the power, not having the power of a union. So they got radical. Things were tense. So generally this is seen as one of like the two seminal events in Vancouver labor history. One of them uh, being the battle of Ballantine pier. The other one, of course, being the onto Ottawa trek where trekkers moved from work camps originally in the BC interior to occupy parts of Vancouver and then jumped on a bunch of trains where they eventually were stopped at Regina, where agent provocateurs fired from the crowd and strikers were stopped in their tracks, leaving a couple people dead. In this instance, a fleeing striker was shot in the back of his leg. This marked kind of the end of radicalism in the Vancouver labor movement of the, the time during the Great Depression, in part because, one... Ironheel Bennett, Bennett, R.B. Bennett, the prime minister, was eventually defeated in an election in no small part due to the activism around the Ottawa Trek. Canada re-elected 
Mackenzie King, William Lyon Mackenzie King, as their prime minister, which led to a general softening of kind of the anti-labor policies of the conservative government. This also marked a shift in Soviet foreign policy, where the desire to spur on radicalism by supplanting other labor unions with their own more radical and pro-communist ones was replaced by a strategy of working with other labor unions that were not explicitly communist to generate a broader workers' movement in non-communist countries. I was about to mention that background of the, you know, the growth of the Soviet Union and communism. Meanwhile, in Canada and elsewhere in the liberal world, you had an anti-communist sentiment, especially in police forces where they saw radicalism as a threat and something to be put down, which partially explains the intensity of the police response to this. Yeah, and... And this is all happening in an environment after the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919, where severe police reaction brought the, the strike movement to its knees after having been paralyzed for six weeks in 1919 by general strikers. Bringing it back to today, we have not seen much labor action yet, in at least in B.C., in response to COVID, you usually do see in recessions, labor militancy increase. Alberta saw a day of healthcare workers wildcat strike following reports that the province was looking at laying off 11,000 of them and contracting out their jobs, which would make me go on a wildcat strike. There has been wildcat striking in professional sports leagues, particularly in the NBA and WNBA, where the reaction has been in relation to the increase in activism around Black Lives Matter, which, I mean, this year, you're just going to look, people are going to look back on this year, and it's just, it's going to be aberrant in a lot of different ways. But that, that kind of labor activism for people's specific economic and, dare I say, pecuniary interests hasn't occurred yet, though I would not be surprised if it did. So, Vancouver has lost control of its police, is still ravaged by a pandemic, is obstructing councillors from voting on the very thing that they were running to support. Meanwhile, the mayor fiddles or writes letters trying to do things that are controlled by other people. What a time to be alive. What a city, as always. Thank you for listening and supporting the Canby Report. Yes, thank you very much. It has been a hell of an episode today, and we will be back in two weeks with more Vancouver content. I am Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good night. Good night.